So we're going all the way until Easter on this, and the sermon's going to be packed with teaching, but the sermon's not going to be enough. So once again, I'm encouraging you, 9.45, get involved and, uh, and be part of our pre-church Bible studies. This shouldn't just be like, a, oh, it sounds like an extra thing. This should be core. Like, we used to take whole days aside. And now we're like, oh, we want to squeeze God into like an hour and 15 minutes or something. No, no, no. Let's, let's expand our time for God, show up Sunday mornings, Bible study, and it's going to be good. Okay, I'm going to start off with a Slack question. And this is why Slack is so important. We continue to hit Slack questions. The, the way to get involved in Slack is promisechurch.community. And then... Um, Fill out the yellow Get Connected, and we, hopefully, somebody will get you into Slack before the end of the sermon. Um, so I appreciate it. Then, uh, so here's our Slack question that we're going to hit today, and I'm going to look for responses in Slack. Where does milk come from? This is, this is the profound question of today. Where does milk come come from please tell me this is this is really really important um because we want to we want to get to the bottom of it and so there's already going to be a whole bunch of conversations that are that are coming up pretty quick responses and uh, and i'm excited to hear them so where does milk come from while you're answering that i figured out a way to catch christians flat-footed there's a, there's a really, really easy way to put Christians in a very awkward, well, okay, there's lots of ways to put Christians in awkward places, but this way gets them every time. When you ask this question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And, and we just, we throw that word around a lot because we're evangelicals, and as my New Testament professor called them, we're even jellyfish. Um, but they're, they're like, what's the gospel? And, and it's a, it's, we feel a little bit of pressure around that question because as a, as a good Christian, we feel like we should be able to clearly articulate what is the gospel. And then we go, uh, I don't know how to say it. So I decided to ask a similar question. Where does milk come from? Um, the pressure to reduce the gospel to a sticky sentence isn't actually exemplified in the Bible. It's not a biblical idea. It's a cultural expectation. The pressure to reduce the gospel to a sticky sentence is not a biblical idea. It is a cultural expectation. I'll give you an example of this. I was in a meeting with a whole room full of pastors. We were at a pastor's conference, and we all work full-time ministry. We all have studied this, devoted our life to it. This is what it is. We know Jesus. We know the scripture. And the minister who was ministering to us that day, just another pastor, asked that question, and everyone just went, uh. And then started throwing out ideas. Oh, this, and this, and this, and this. None of them were wrong. They're all qualified ministers. But none of them were the same. They all said it differently. And then the minister had his little sticky sentence. Here's what the gospel is. And everyone, oh yeah, that's good. That's good. Right? So we want to pack in so much 
into such a simple word, gospel. We want to pack in the entire scriptures into that. We want, to, we want to just make it, and then we want to make it super succinct, super easy. So what happened when we say, where does milk come from? Let's check what we got. Milk comes from mammals. It comes from God. It comes from a mammal. Milk comes from Metro. You're right. There it is. Milk comes from the fridge. This man knows where stuff's coming from. Milk comes from farmer God. Some people get milk from almonds and rice. Does chocolate milk come from the same place too? Oats, soybeans. What came first, God or the cow? Interesting. Depends on if you're asking Moses or Aaron. Uh, Where does milk come from? Me. Okay. Um, Cows from almonds, right? So you ask a simple question, and you get simplistic responses, right? We get very simple responses, and that's what we want to do with the gospel. We ask a simple question, what's the gospel? And then we want to respond with the most simple response possible. But the problem is, we get simplistic answers Something that is simple can be true, right? If it's simple, it can be true, and a child can understand it. But if it's simplistic, it's oversimplified to the point of being in error. It's something that can be wrong. It, it can lead you down a wrong road. It's not enough. If it's simplistic, you need to be building it up more. And I think that's what's happened with our concept of the gospel is we've reduced it to so much and taught that as though it was the whole thing that we've ended up treating the entire narrative of God with simplistic thinking. We haven't actually done enough to really dive in to what is the gospel, and Paul, who is writing the book of Romans to a, to a context where he, is, he has seen the revelation of God, and he's seen that it is different than what the Jews expected, which means you're working against thousands of years of tradition, and it's different from what the, what the Gentiles expected, which means you're working against another thousands of years of tradition. And so he's got to take these two contexts and bring them together so that he can show Christ overall. That's what he's doing in the book of Romans. He's bringing two totally different people group together to bring it together. You can't reduce that to a single sentence. You can't just be like, oh, well, here's the gospel that Paul's talking about, one sentence. No, that doesn't do it injustice. We're going to learn that right now in Romans 1. So, Romans 1, 1 to 6. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to ask Paul to slow down a little bit, because this is loaded. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand 
through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Got it? <laughs> okay, wait up, Paul. Slow down. I can't keep up. Paul is starting the book of Romans fast and furious. He's jumping right in. The first six verses are an introduction of the gospel. Not one sentence, as you heard. That was loaded. So we have to take the next little bit and unpack what he's actually talking about. What Paul wrote here is an introduction of topics included in the gospel. And we want to, we tend to want to reduce it to super simplicity to the point of being simplistic. I'm going to tell you where this comes from. It comes from our industrial revolution. Shocking, right? So in the industrial revolution, that allowed us to move from handcrafted everything into mass production. What you did in the Industrial Revolution is you actually looked at, this is the end product I want, and what is the most efficient means to get us to the end product? Well, church influences culture, and culture influences the church. And so culture swinging towards mass efficiency and the church, and we see it in the Great Awakenings. Church is moving towards mass conversion. We want millions of people to know Jesus. So what do we do? We want to package it in such a way that it is clear and concise and has a simplistic response. Bam, 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 done. And what happened? Well, we completely changed the way we do church. Totally changed the way we do church. The revival setting of church in a, in a, in a tent was very, very different than churches that would meet in buildings like this. Churches that met in buildings like this ran through a very specific liturgy that we now think is boring. It wasn't attractive. So we go through all of it, and you'll actually notice that everything in this, even in this space right now, is meant to draw your eye. Even the steps at the front is intentional. The steps in the front are meant to be an ascent into the presence of God. As you come into a sanctuary, it's meant to actually lead upwards through the pastor who becomes the voice of God up to the ultimate cross, which everything centers on. So this is the design of churches, and this might be the first time that I'm really appreciative that we're here, that we're here in this building. Because in this design of churches, and I'm totally going off my notes for a moment, but in this design of churches, everything was supposed to be pushed towards the person of Jesus, who's supposed to be seen front and center. This is the ascension into the presence of God. Well, revival services got rid of all of that. We did three songs, announcements, a nice testimony story, and then an engaging gospel message. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people came. And they became Christian, which is wonderful. That's actually where we got our Christianity from. And so they become Christian, and they're doing great, lovely. 
And then the, the mainline churches, they were like, well, if it's working for the tents, then it should work for us too. And we changed our entire service to become a revival model service, which is why we sing three songs, have announcements, and then have a sermon. That's where the structure comes from. That's why the evangelical churches you go to all look the same. Because they've all got that same formula that we learned because of the Great Awakening. Okay, that was extra. There you go. It's free, don't worry. Um, Paul's description of the gospel of God is not tweetable. It's an overstatement of what the gospel is, and it's tied up in the person of Jesus. So let's go through it and try to keep up. The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So Paul is saying, I'm an apostle sent to share the gospel of God, which was promised beforehand. So he starts to define what the gospel is. It's promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul is simply and casually saying, you know, I'm, a I'm, a, I'm an apostle of this gospel. What am I talking about? The entire Old Testament. All of it. And he is writing to people who say, who, and he's making an assumption, you know the basics of this. Or, if you're Jewish, you actually know it fairly well. And so he's making the assumption that you know the Old Testament. He's anchoring the gospel in the Old Testament. Paul's saying, you know, that gospel, the promise that was there. Notice our church name is Promise. The gospel was a promise that was in the Old Testament. Today, I'm afraid, because we oversimplified, we don't even know what the promise was. So Paul, we need to catch up. For us, we need to slow down our approach to the gospel. So let's go back, take a look at the foundation of Israel, back to the foundation of the world. That's where the gospel story is. And that's what Paul starts with. It's complex, and it's filled with history. It's rich in a word that we don't like in religious circles right now. It's rich in mystery. And it's not supposed to be given cheaply as a shirt slogan to everybody who comes asking. Jesus himself said, don't give pearls to swine. Wait, what? What? So we have this piece where there's a preparation. There's a, there's a, there's a greater work that's going on that the Holy Spirit is doing. I have a question for you for Slack. Should Israel matter in your Christian worldview? Someone uh, decided that they wanted to, uh, to mention about cows. They're milked using a vacuum cup, which is attached to the cow's teats, and the milk is sent through stainless steel pipes to a refrigerated vats that's stored at five degrees or less. Within 48 hours, the milk is taken into tankers to a milk factory where it's pasteurized and homogenized. Thank you! This is what we need to do to the gospel. So... I think it's easy to explain what the gospel is, but it takes a lot more work to understand what the gospel is. Exactly. This person studied geodesy and geomatics and engineering at school. I define geomatics as being a science involved in the collection, management, and storage of graphic data uh, for mapping and geospatial analysis purposes. But I spent four years in school, 12 years in the workforce, and still have a lot to learn before I could call myself an expert. We have much more going on in learning what the gospel is. Okay, so should Israel matter in your Christian worldview is the question for Slack. If you don't know the Old Testament, you don't yet know God's story. 
The gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. The Old Testament is clear what the launching part of Paul's gospel is. It's the actual kingdom of Israel, the center of God's created order. Consider Jeremiah 3.17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. All nations will gather to it in the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. They shall, they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. There's an Old Testament prophet. Israel will be, will be the center. All nations will gather to it and it will be the throne of the Lord. How many people, when we start thinking about the gospel, start with, here's, here's what the gospel is, Israel at the center of God's created order. Is that what we started with? Here's the good news, Israel at the center of God's created order. And Paul did, because Paul hangs all of his arguments on connecting the gospel of Jesus with the good news promised to Israel. Here's our second consideration. Thankfully, Paul continues his description of the gospel, and hopefully it's going to become more clear to us. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Sweet! We just got to Jesus. Yes! All right. Gospel's about Jesus, right? The Son of God. But watch what Paul does. He actually presents Jesus very specifically. How does he present Jesus? He is descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus is descended. Why does that matter? The gospel is about the king on the throne of Israel. That's what the good news is. There's a king on the throne of Israel. We need to know this because it matters. This is what son of God means. In first century um, Jerusalem, Son of God was a colloquial reference to Caesar. Right? It's a reference to Caesar. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It ain't Caesar. It's Jesus. Caesar is not in charge here. Guess what that means for us? It means that the government in Ontario and the government in the federal seat in Ottawa is not the one who's in charge here. Jesus is. Our allegiance lies not in the conservatives, the NDPs, or the liberals. Our allegiance lies in Jesus. And you know what? Every time I watch the news, I'm reminded of how good it is that my allegiance is anchored in Jesus and not in the political figures that are leading our country. So, so we look at that and we say, here is good news. Jesus is on the throne. So, why does the son of David mean? Matter. Because David's the archetypical Jewish king. Ideal king. When Paul says a descendant of David, Paul's describing the type of king that his gospel is about. He's also describing a king that is expected, that's anticipated. We talked about that in, in Christmas Eve. The ideal king who rules over Israel at the center of God's created order. And as King David was coming to the end of his life, God promised that a son of David would eternally be on the throne of Israel. If the sons of David were faithful, 
So I'm going to read 2 Samuel 7, 2 to 16. It's going to be on the screen. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your forefathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These are promises. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son, the son of God. When he commits iniquity, this is also talking about all of David's descendants. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. We see that in Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever by me. Your throne will be established forever. So Israel should matter in our Christian worldview. This is huge. This is a lot of stuff. But when we, when we oversimplify the gospel, we can actually miss it. So the gospel so far is the kingdom, the actual kingdom of Israel is at the center of God's created order is happening through Jesus, who is David's heir. There's our foundation that Paul's starting to build for us. The kingdom of God is established through Jesus to be the rule over the entire earth that all nations will follow. This is massive. Every, we, we sing about it at Christmas, wonderful counselor, the government will rest upon your shoulders literally means that he becomes king of kings, lord of lords, governing the entire world. That's the good news, that the faithful God has come. So the gospel is supposed to be more complex than what we do it. But it also is personal. So here's a next question for you on Slack. How has God been good to you? We were talking about this over communion today. How has God been good to you? I love to hear a couple of statements from you on Slack today. How has God been good to you? Someone just wrote in, um, the gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see the creation of man, the fall into sin, the promise of the Messiah, the formation of Israel through whom a savior of the world would arise, who would not only save the Jewish people, but the entire world. Yes. So here's where we start. See how it went from simplistic the gospel is like, maybe Jesus loves you and he's forgiven your sins. Or the gospel is something like, you could live forever with Jesus if you believe in him. No. The gospel is way bigger than that. It's way bigger. It's about Jesus ruling the earth over people who recognize that this is a good thing. This is key. So my question, how has God been good to you? This is about our participation with the gospel. See, any ruler can come and dominate, can come and have exclusive rule over, and just be like, you will do it my way. Right? I mean, it's the easiest way to fix problems. Everybody do it my way. I think Pastor Danielle has that as a saying. You know, everything would work out great if everybody just did what I said. But that's the most efficient way to fix problems. 
But God has chosen another way. He said, okay, I have a way. This is the way you should go. Walk, therefore, in it. But I'm not going to force you. I'm going to let you come to me. Come and choose to follow my way. How is God being good to you when you recognize that Jesus is Lord is a good thing? That it actually provides the healing and the structure that we need. That, that, it, that it provides the, the constructs for an eternal kingdom at peace. That's what Jesus does. And we can experience it here. Someone was telling me about Promise Church. And they were like, I've never experienced a community like Promise Church. But I guess it's just because it's full of nice people. And I went, you don't know me well. <laughs> but the reality is, Promise Church is a community like no other because of the work and rule of Jesus. We didn't just come randomly together to say, oh yeah, we're just going to be a bunch of people that are going to sit through a service every Sunday and be nice to each other. We're united around the lordship of Jesus. That's why we come. That's what it's about. And so we're bringing that in. Uh, someone um, said that Jesus is the Savior. And, and it's very, very true. And that, that word gets just packed so much. Someone else says, God has been faithful and present through every single storm in my life. God is good to me in that he gives me life and breath and purpose and a wonderful final destination, a hope of a final destination. God has redeemed every difficult circumstance in my life. He works all things together for good, but that's Romans 8, so we can't get to that yet. Um, one of the children in the room said, God has helped in hard times. And there are so many ways that God, has, that God has been good to me that I can't even list them here because it happens daily when I have eyes to see. See, we have made the gospel much too small. I've already proven that. We haven't even gotten out of Romans 1-3 yet. It's so much bigger than we ever saw. So I'm going to finish up very quickly. Paul, I still am having a problem catching up, but I'm going to keep on going. Romans 1-4. And the Son of God was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness in his resurrection of the dead. See? The gospel is about Jesus dying for my sins. No. It's about the Holy Spirit being on Jesus forever. Remember Isaiah? Or sorry, remember uh, Samuel that I read? My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul who had put it away from before you. So the Spirit of God being on a person is the sign of kingship. What greater way to show the Spirit of God is on Jesus than his resurrection? That Jesus is the King of Israel and we know it because God rose Jesus from the dead. God sent Jesus to be the king of Israel, as was promised to the prophets of old, to bring Israel out of the control of Rome and into a new kingdom. Okay, so what does it have to do with me? Verse 6. This includes you who are called to belong to Jesus. And here's the picture. Here's the picture. You're called into God's kingdom as subjects. You are not the ruler any longer. You are subjects. 
And Jesus will rule as the ideal, just, and fair king for all time, in all lands, for God's purposes. So the problem is, when we as Christians present a simple gospel that's so reduced from its original complex purposes, it becomes hard to sell. I was evangelizing a while ago, and I was talking to somebody, and they said, I love everything you're saying about God and Jesus because I was giving a, a more complex picture. And they're like, but it makes no sense. How does one man dying on a cross forgive me of my sins? What is that supposed to do? Well, it only makes sense when one man dying on a cross, rising again, becomes Lord. Now that Lord now has the authority to say this is the way it is and this is the way it isn't. That Lord has the authority to draw the line in the sand and says this is the way, walk therefore in it. And so we've got to just take a step back a little bit and start to see the larger gospel. And this is what Paul is saying. The gospel, someone here says, the gospel touches our life individually as we are forgiven and born again, but also has cosmic ramifications in the universal reign of God. Absolutely. God has revealed himself to me and helped me understand his purpose for my life is better than my own ways. He's healed me and saved me from myself. What a great testimony, the gospel, that you are included in. The king of the world, come to make all things right, has decided that you are allowed to be in it. You're part of it. You're, no, you're not the problem. You're part of the solution. And so this is the beginning. This is the foundation of Romans. Next week I'm getting into Romans 2. But we won't be able to do all of Romans 2 because that was a lot. Everybody think that was a lot? That was pretty intense. Romans is intense. I can't do anything about it. I'm trying to get as much in as we can, but oh my gosh. I invite you next week, get into discussion in our Bible study, downstairs 945. Um, it's worth it because there's so much here that shapes our faith. Let me end in a word of prayer. Someone's correcting me. We didn't look at verse, verse 5. We have received grace and apostleship. God, there's way too much in your scriptures to be able to fit into our small little category of a revival liturgy that says, hey, you got 25 minutes to get it out for the week. But God, I pray that you would give us a desire to know more. I pray that you'd birth in us a desire to know your scripture, to know how it connects with, with our histories, and to know how it connects with us personally. God, this isn't just something that we could approach casually. It's not something that we could just approach and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got my spiritual fix for the week. But it's something that you're calling us to dive into, to truly try to grasp and pull away the layers and understand and do justice to it because in our simplicity, we've removed the mystery. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would allow us to dive in over the next few months. Give us eyes to see, ears to understand, and a heart to receive and I pray that you'll be with us as we go through the first week of 2023. For those that need peace, I pray that through your kingdom, through your spirit, that you would provide peace. For those that need provision, that you would provide provision. For those that need uh, comfort from loneliness, that you would provide strong community. Jesus, I pray that you would be the answer to every one of our needs. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being a part of our service today. What an introduction. I need a drink.
because my throat's parched. And uh, God bless you. We'll see you next week.